Okay, so it was a few years ago and a friend, she said I should apply for this new TV thing. She promised it's gonna be huge, yo. <laughs> well, you know, it sounded stupid to me. I didn't think it was gonna work. A few months go by and finally, this new TV show comes out. It's called Survivor. People trapped on an island doing all kinds of crazy stunts. And the show is kind of awesome. And I'm watching it thinking, you know what? Maybe I should have played the little games so I could eat their lizards and betray my TV friends or whatever. Maybe I could have won a million bucks. That was a long time ago. And lots of people since have claimed their prize as a TV survivor. And that's great. But watching it the other day, I got to thinking. What about the real survivors? What about the people who put it out there against all the odds and find a way to make it through? There's no million-dollar prize waiting for them. Today, from PRX and NPR, Snap Judgment proudly presents Survivor. Survivor. Real stories from real people who battle everything to get the job done, even though the cameras are nowhere to be seen. My name is Glenn Washington. Strap in for this one, because this is Snap Judgment. Snap Judgment. We're going to start off today's episode with a conversation with Lydia Berg, which naturally starts where all survival stories begin, sunny Los Angeles. It was October of 1971 when I was a junior in high school. My dad was invited by his work buddy, Bill Knorr, on a fishing expedition in Mexico. They both just retired from Family Life Insurance Company. Very few people knew that Dad had been asked to leave the company. Everyone there liked and admired him, but his numbers were way down because he was so caught up in Mom's drinking. Mom was very good at denial. She made it sound like they'd planned Dad's early retirement so they could spend more time traveling, and she encouraged Dad to do the trip with Bill. I encouraged him because I wanted him to do something for himself. I'd always seen Dad as a kind of hero in the way he dealt with Mom, but I was questioning that. If she passed out, he carried her to bed. If she broke something, he cleaned it up. He believed if he loved her enough, she'd find the strength to change. The expedition consisted of 10 boats that would start in San Felipe in the northern part of the Sea of Cortez and hop from anchorage to anchorage down the inside of the Baja Peninsula, then back again. Bill's boat was only 16 feet long. All the other boats were much bigger. Mom and I drove down with Dad to San Felipe, spent a couple of nights, saw the flotilla off, and headed back to L.A. with two full weeks ahead of us completely out of contact with Dad. She could be wonderful. I was really hoping she would be in good form, but she was drunk almost every day. On the ninth day, she was waiting for me in the kitchen when I got home from school. She was completely sober. She looked at me and said, your father and Bill have been missing for a week. She said, we'll get through this. I felt the earth drop out from under me. He was the strong one in the family, and he was really my one clear source of unconditional love. So the sense of what the loss would be if he was gone, it would be enormous. It would be enormous. We learned some of the basics that afternoon from the Coast Guard. Dad and Bill had problems with the outboard the first couple of days and were slowing down the other boats. So they dropped out at a little settlement called Puerto Citos. The plan was to camp there, then rejoin the flotilla on its way back north. 
There was another American in the campground. As Dad was zipping up the tent before he and Bill took the boat out for a day of fishing, he told the guy jokingly, if we're not back by sunset, send out the troops. They weren't back by sunset. Sometime after midnight, a Chubasco hit, one of the sudden violent storms the Sea of Cortez is notorious for. It took nearly a week for the young American to put it all together. The empty tent, the missing boat, the crashing waves. But he rode the bus to the closest phone and set things in motion. By the time the news reached me and Mom, Dad and Bill had been missing longer than anyone had ever survived in an open boat in those waters in those conditions. All I could think was, how are we going to survive without him? The Coast Guard started searching early the next morning, along with a number of search and rescue volunteers. Dad and Bill's boss dropped everything and flew down in his own twin-engine aero commander. He was great. He updated us several times a day. The story got onto the AP wires, and Mom fielded panicked phone calls from friends. She dealt with reporters. Mom was convinced that he was alive. Mom rarely bothered to access her own strength. But those three days, her strength was astonishing, and her belief in Dad's survival was unwavering. Late on the third day of the search, the Coast Guard announced that survival beyond 10 days was not likely, and they would not be resuming the operation the following morning. Mom would not accept that Dad was gone, and it scared me. Or I was scared of what was going to happen when her denial broke down. The thing is, it was a completely different kind of denial than I was used to from Mom. It wasn't a negative force, it was positive. She just knew he was alive. On the final pass of that final day, just before dusk, the Coast Guard spotted the little boat in the masses of whitecaps. 20 minutes later, the rescue helicopter arrived. We have a photo of Dad and Bill with the clean-cut Coast Guard crews on the Mexican mainland. Dad and Bill have wild hair and 10-day beards, but they were in surprisingly good health and insisted on going to a hotel with hot showers, not to a hospital. Mom and I talked to Dad that night from his hotel in Hermosillo. He sounded so good, so clear, even after that life-and-death ordeal. He told us how the engine failed spectacularly on their way in from fishing, how the anchor caught as the last of the line went out, then pulled up in the steep waves of the Chabasco, which eventually blew them 50 miles offshore. They brought food and water for lunch. Everything else was in the campground. By the sixth day, their water ration was down to a swallow apiece, and their tongues were swelling in their mouths. Bill had lost his wife the year before. He pretty much gave up and was ready to die. Dad looked around that 16-foot boat and figured out what he could use to distill salt water into fresh. He used empty oil cans and a hose from the bait tank. He mixed gas and oil as fuel, then sparked wires from the battery to light it. He and Bill produced more than enough water to bring themselves back from the brink. Dad joked that the only food he really craved was raw fish. They were on a fishing boat, and they couldn't catch a fish. He said, we even saw them, and they as good as thumbed their noses at us. The Coast Guard flew Dad to San Diego, and his boss insisted on flying me and Mom down in the Aero Commander to bring him home. Mom hadn't touched a drop of alcohol in four days, but she started drinking in the morning and was incoherently drunk by the time we landed in San Diego. I'll never forget the moment Dad came out of the debriefing room. He was wearing clean jeans and a Coast Guard T-shirt. He looked handsome and strong, this man who'd outsmarted death. He came through the door and saw us, his former boss, whom he hugely respected, and his daughter and his wife, so drunk she could barely stand. I watched as the open hope on his face 
closed down in defeat. I actually tried to talk him into leaving her more than once. But I've come to recognize that he fought to stay alive in the Sea of Cortez because he refused to leave any of us. For better or for worse, and this is literally for better or for worse, I do think that they had a connection that few people have. I find myself believing she really did know. All these years later, I've come to see their story as a love story. My parents died within five months of each other, 22 years after Dad was lost at sea. Mom kept drinking, and Dad kept loving her. Thanks, Lydia. Lydia is currently working on a book of memoirs. That piece was produced by Snap Judgment's Stephanie Fu. And if you think that Lydia's father had a hard time on the ocean, get ready. Because we're going north. Way north. Wiseman, Alaska North. It's a small community composed of less than 25 people. Ethan Daniel Davidson lived there, and he soon found out that Mother Nature both giveth and taketh away. One day in about mid-November, I went hiking out to cross the middle fork of the Koyukuk River. In that time of year, uh, the temperature was about 40 below zero, so you can actually feel your eyelids sort of momentarily freeze shut every time you blink. And while I was up there, I heard all this otherworldly sound. I didn't know what it was, but uh, finally realized that it was a dog sled, and I saw the dog sled go by on the river ice. So I came back to the cabin, and it was after dark by this point, and my uh, neighbor's kid was there, and he said, did you hear what happened to Sep? And I said, well, I just saw him dog mushing out across the river. I took some photos of him. And he said, Sep had been mushing, and as he was cresting this hill, this bear was coming in the opposite direction, and they met right at the crest of the hill. And the bear began tearing into the dogs and killing the dogs. Sep went after the bear with the braking system for the sled, which is basically like a gigantic anchor. It's a big, heavy metal hook with a rope attached. Swung at the bear, narrowly missing the bear's snout. The bear pinned Sep down onto the ground, left two big bloody paw prints on his shoulders and a bloody snout print on the neck of his parka. And Sep was within a second of being killed. When the wheel dogs, those are the dogs closest to the sled, began attacking the bear from behind, the dogs in the back gave their lives attacking that bear to give the musher an opportunity to escape. And Sep took that opportunity and was able to get away, made it back to the village, got us. We rushed out there on snowmobiles. We had guns and spotlights put our spotlights on the bear and we could see that the bear was eating the dogs. We fired a couple of shots into the air. The bear kind of looked up at us and sort of gave a, a growl that suggested mild annoyance at our presence. At that point, the villagers began shooting the bear. The bear got up, ran a little ways, and then sort of fell off a little side of a hill and died. This old 25-year-old bear was emaciated at 500 pounds and was over seven feet from tip to tail. The bear was dying of hunger and had been probably dying for the last two years. Its teeth were all broken off and had been broken off for some time. And so it was really unable to eat and digest food. It was pretty sad for every animal involved. Out of the nine dogs that were on the team, the bear had killed seven of them. 
one of the dogs, we had to end its suffering. And we saved a ninth dog. It had a very severe injury to one of her hind legs. We didn't expect the ninth dog to survive the night. We took it back to the village because we wanted to try to get this dog back to safety. And she survived the night. The next morning, we went out back to the site with the benefit of daylight, and we tended to the dogs. The dogs that he runs, these are, you know, these are part of the family. These are like children or, or siblings. These people have a very, very close relationship with their dogs. We took the dogs down to the river and set them on the ice so that in breakup they would be carried away down the river. We felt that this was the most respectful way to handle this and let the dogs sort of be carried away into the infinity of the Alaskan wilderness. It was a very emotional scene. It was a, it was a very emotional scene. But the, the hardest part for me was I was totally unprepared for what happened later that afternoon. We brought the body of the bear back into the village to clean it up. And that uh, the wounded uh, sled dog was, was there, of course, uh, the one that we had saved. She smelled the bear come into the house, and the terror that I saw in her, in her face, shaking and, and trying to get up and, and, and get out of there on three legs seeing that dog that had survived this terrible ordeal, thinking that she was going to go through it again, was just something I, I just couldn't deal with. I had to excuse myself for, uh, for the rest of the day. Thankfully, the dog survived many, many more years. I mean, she was never a sled dog again, but she had a very uh, good life for the next eight or nine years after that. I would visit that dog in Fairbanks and visit Sep. And going back and seeing this dog, it always gave me great uh, satisfaction, great hope that uh, anything is possible as long as we have the, the support of, uh, of other people who really care about us as well. It, it, it gave me a lot of strength. Give me a lot of strength. Leave your tears for the night to come. You can close both eyes when you sleep. Ain't it strange the small little comforts every con learns to keep? That fateful night inspired Ethan to live for the moment and become a musician. You're listening right now to one of his songs, and you can check out more of his music at silvertoothmusic.com. We'll have a link at snapjudgment.org. That piece was produced, Dear Snappers, by our own Stephanie Fu. Now, when Snap Judgment, the Survivor episode continues, Snap steps into the ring. A young girl steps on stage and we hope that no one makes the wrong step on a very perilous path for real when snap judgment the survivor episode continues stay tuned
Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Survivor episode. This week, we're featuring amazing stories from people who in more ways than one, give it all they've got just to survive. We're going to kick off this section back in time, during the Great Depression where Rudy Mancini found himself one of many, many, many people down on this luck. Rudy Mancini grew up during the Great Depression, and that means he spent a lot of time hungry. It's impossible for the breadwinner to feed a family. My dad used to say, we got more dinner times than dinners. To help feed his four siblings, Rudy took to the city dump. The only way a kid could make any money at all was picking up scrap metal. Everybody was in it, even young, old, take off in the morning, you know, small armies, and pretty soon, Everything is picked clean. New sources of metal were guarded like an Italian guards an old mushroom patch, you know, we don't want anybody to find it. So he often had to desperately compete for every piece of metal he could find. And he knew what he needed to do to get what he wanted. Use his fists. There was a kid called Mickey McKee. He was a little tough little Irishman and we had some real classic brawls. Just one morning, I picked up a few pieces here and there. And look, and there's this Mickey McKee, you know. Mickey wanted his loot, and Rudy wasn't about to give it up. And pretty soon we're at it, and we're wrestling around. We roll into a ditch, and it just so happens that this Sammy Angott, the fighter, was doing road work. Sammy Angott was a star boxer, and he was also Rudy's neighbor. He reached down, broke up the fight, He said, Rudy, I told you about this. What are you rolling around like a drunk in a bar? Why don't you learn to box like I asked you to? I don't know about it, Sammy. You could make more money in one fight than it'd take you three months to pick scrap metal. Uh, Well, I don't know. Yeah, okay. Rudy went to the Bronson House Boxing Club gym that week and made the team right off the bat. It was such a popular sport Even though there was massive unemployment, fight clubs sprung up in church basements, old warehouses and barns. It was uh, three rounds, a dollar per round, 10 bucks if you win, see. Five dollars could feed a family of three for a week. And Rudy was winning. I was making more than my dad. I remember how proud I was and handed Mama uh, my first $5 bill to help out with the groceries. She couldn't believe it, you know. Here I was like a 16-year-old boy bringing home that kind of money. Fighting came naturally to Rudy. He had spent so much of his life literally fighting to survive. And now it was finally paying off. Your stomach is just churning. But then when you get into the ring and the bell goes on, it all goes away and it's just a survival then. And then, wow, there is nothing like it. And then with the write-ups in the paper and sometimes your photograph. But being a rookie, he did have a lot to learn. Take, for example, the time he and his club went to box for the inmates at the West Virginia State Prison. I was fighting fifth, which meant I had plenty of time. I had my robe on. I stretched out on a bench. I thought I'd get some relaxation. And I heard the guy say, let's go, Rudy, you're on. I said, no, it couldn't be. I'm one fifth tonight. He said, no, you've got to go on now. I remember walking into the arena, and they had a, like a chain link fence running the length of the yard. And there was bleachers on one side where all the inmates from the institution were watching. The crowd was really, they were really raucous. They were stamping their feet and hollering, let's go, let's go, let's go. I said, whatever, they don't let us get out of here. So I noticed, I felt a little breeze kind of as I jumped to get into the ring. 126 pound featherweight, Rudy Mancini. My manager reached over on my shoulder and grabbed a robe and I turned and I danced out to the center of the ring. His opponent advanced. And he started toward me like that. He had his guard up and he just dropped him like that. And he looked down and I looked down and I wasn't wearing any trunks. (laughs) Yup, Rudy had leapt into the ring butt naked. It turned out he'd lent his trunks to another fighter, expecting to get them back before he went on. But in the confusion of the changing lineup, he hadn't had time to reclaim his pants. 
and the prisoners, and they're laughing, and it's just, just catcalls and scream and laughter. Rudy ran back to the dressing room, put on some trunks, and got right back out there. And I get a standing ovation. <laughs> that wasn't an easy decision that night. I always thought, well, the judges would never vote against me. After all, with all that working out, Rudy was looking good. And the ladies noticed. Yeah, there was a, a kind of groupies that hang around boxers. <laughs> but Rudy didn't care about any of them. The girl of his dreams was named Nancy. I met her at a dance at the pavilion. She was a very pretty girl, long black hair, very dark. Looked a little bit like Tantaleo in white cargo, very sultry looking. Rudy had it all, the prize money, the girl, even a future. Remember that star boxer Sammy Angot? He went on to become world featherweight champion, and his manager wanted to turn Rudy pro too. I would have been a professional fighter, but it all changed when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. I was drafted. Nancy went with Rudy to the train station to see him off. She told him that she would wait for him and kissed him goodbye. And Rudy left. We went in on D2, two days after D-Day. And so Rudy continued to fight. Overseas, the sweat and adrenaline were familiar, but that's where the similarities ended. This wasn't the ring. You couldn't tell when the next punch was going to hit. I don't know of anything next to boxing uh, is more brutal than war, you know. It's, uh... When I went into the service, I was fighting at a 126-pound featherweight. I was tough as nails, and that's what really got me through a lot of the combat. The big thing was survival uh, artillery bombings, you know, when you're dug into a foxhole and you're pinned down, and explosions are going on all around you. I noticed a lot of guys would bleed. They would, they would, they would cough up blood after a heavy bombing from the stomach up. It would break something, you know, inside. Most of it was, it was pretty bad. On his worst days, Rudy looked at his picture of Nancy and dreamed about their future. We'd sit around, talk. Everybody would bring out their girl's picture. And I'd pass around everybody and go, wow, you know. He says, you know, if you buy the farm, I'm going to go home and see her. That thing kept me going. Many times I felt like, God, I'm not going to pull through this damn thing. And then I said, I've got to for her. When he made it out alive, once he knew he was going home, Rudy knew only two things for sure. One, that he was going to be with Nancy. And two, that he was never going to fight again. Once the war was over, I didn't, I didn't have any more uh, desire to enter the ring. For two and a half years, strangers were trying to kill me almost every day. And so fighting was just so, I, you know, when I came home, I was so relieved just to get in and bang somebody around again. And you know, I just was almost a pacifist after that. Rudy got back home to Pittsburgh at midnight. And first thing in the morning, he went to Nancy's house. So I went down to her home, I knocked on the door, and uh, there was nobody, nobody answered. So I walked around the front, and she's hanging clothes on the line. And she sees me, and she wasn't expecting me. We embrace. She started to cry. And at first I thought, well, she's crying, she was happy to see me. But that wasn't it. She said, I met somebody else. <laughs> I noticed she was wearing a field jacket with, a, with the bars of a second lieutenant, and she gave me the guy's name, and I said, I know this guy. I said, are you sure that this is what you want to do? And she said, yeah. I said, you kept me waiting two and a half years, and you couldn't tell me? She said, right after I got your letter saying that you were going to go to the Pacific Theater, I decided I wasn't going to wait anymore. Uh, and then... Big disappointment. Yeah, and that's all I thought about. Yeah. <clears throat> Rudy was obsessed with Nancy and her new boyfriend for months. He could not get over it. Because for the first time, he had no recourse, no way to confront this other man. 
I used to drive down and just parking out, you know, sit around her home, watch, just to see. I was just curious about this guy. In fact, Rudy did see him once. Nancy and her man crossing the street in front of Sears. They embrace, you know, he kisses her. And then I watch him, they walk down, he disappeared into a theater. And just all the ones that just washed over me, well, that's it. So if you hadn't gone to war, what would you have done? Do you think you would have fought for her? Oh yeah, 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 I think so. But I felt like I had enough of fighting. Not to worry, not to worry. Let it be known, there is hope for the brokenhearted. Rudy eventually did get over Nancy and went on to have a beautiful family and a long career with the FBI. He and his family now live on their wineries. <laughs> That's right, their wineries near Calistoga, California. And he's currently working on a memoir as well. You earned it, Rudy. You earned it. Next up, we're going to eavesdrop on a StoryCorps conversation about working on one of San Francisco's most iconic monuments, the Golden Gate Bridge. For 25 years, Ken Hopper and Kerry Davis have been part of the team that maintains the structure of the bridge. Their workplace is a destination for millions of tourists, but it's also become a crossroads for a much more desperate type of visitor. Where I work is on the Golden Gate Bridge. We climb in places where nobody else really goes. It's awesome. We get paid to climb around in the world's biggest jungle gym. To the very top is 746 feet. You're walking on this three-foot-in-diameter... Cylinder. Looks, looks like a pipe. Yeah, yeah. And you hang on to this cable, and the steeper it gets, the tighter you hang on. <laughs> and the harder it is to climb. You know, we have to wear a full-body harness, and we are tied off at all times. We just look out for one another. If something's happening and it's going wrong, we have each other's back. We do all the stuff that nobody else wants to do. One of the hardest things I'd say that we have to deal with, I guess we've got to talk about it at some point, uh, people who come out to end their lives. For a time, if there was somebody over the rail. A person is thinking about killing themselves. We were the, the first call, and uh, we'd have to set up with our harnesses and go out. Sometimes we talk, sometimes we just try to get ourselves close to that person uh, to actually grab them. I've got to the point where I walk up to him and I just flat out and say, you thinking about jumping off this bridge today? And I've had him truly answer, yeah. They might be in tears or they might not be focused on anything else but the water. To see a person that's that low, that's really hard to see. Yeah. Yeah. But the majority of the time, we've, uh, we've been pretty successful. I'd say we've got 90% of the people that we, we've gone out after. I remember one time... Um, a guy was talking to me, and he was a bartender in San Francisco, and he couldn't find a job. And I asked him if I can climb over and talk to him, and he, uh, he's one of the guys that said, thank you. There's really hardly ever any closure. Many times we're worried about, well, what happened to this guy? They took him to the hospital. Does he go okay? And there's a lot of unanswered questions. But, uh, you know, some called us the guardians of the gate or the angels of the gate, and that was nice to hear. We appreciate Ken Hopper and Terry Davis for sharing their lives and their story with SNAP. That piece comes to us by way of the fabulous, amazing StoryCorps crew. You can get a taste, a new taste of StoryCorps each and every week from their podcast. Just go to storycorps.org or we'll have a link on snapjudgment.org. You're listening to Snap Judgment the Survivor Edition, and when we return, I promise you only one thing. You're going to be hungry when it's over. Just so you know, when Snap Judgment, the Survivor episode continues. Stay tuned.
Welcome back to Snap Judgment from PRX and NPR, the Survivor episode. I'm your host, Glenn Washington, and your host, Glenn Washington, can't wait for you to hear this next story. Understand, there are different ways to earn your Survivor medal, and you're about to hear from Fantasia Walker for the first time on stage telling her story in North Carolina for the Monty. It was May of 2008, the year I graduated eighth grade. To me, it was a brand new world to face after that. It was a very proud day for me. But my mom, I thought she had graduated because she was so proud. And it kind of made my day to see her so proud. It just wanted me to wait to see what high school brought. Graduating eighth grade, I thought it was going to welcome a lot of opportunities, hanging with friends a new environment, but that was not the case. The first two years of high school, my mom was diagnosed with sickle cell anemia. She was losing weight because her pants was kind of falling off of her. So that was my main goal, just to make sure she was okay. Just two weeks before I started my junior year, um, I went to sleep and I heard a noise in the hallway. It startled me out my sleep, so I kind of got up to just to go see what the noise was. It was my mom throwing up, going to the bathroom, and she didn't quite make it, so she asked me to help her clean it up, and I helped her. In the meanwhile of me cleaning up, I sort of started going back to my room. I said, I love you, Ma, and she responded, I love you too. I went back to the bed, woke up, um, scared myself out of my sleep, went into the room and she wasn't responding. I tried again and it, she wasn't responding. At this moment, I don't have a phone to get in contact with anybody. So I ran next door to my mom's best friend house. She comes over, runs upstairs, calls my mom's name, Renee, Renee. She didn't respond either. So she rushed back downstairs, ran across the street to call for help. Help came. While EMS was in my house, I was next door, called family, and we're just trying to f- just trying to figure out what was going on. EMS came back in and was like, we, sh- we tried to resuscitate your mom for the last 20 minutes, but she was unresponsive. And she was pronounced dead that morning. Oh, Um, My granddad was standing next to me when I received the news and I dropped down to my knees and said, she was supposed to see me graduate. At this moment, we were faced with how we were gonna pay bills. We don't have any income. We were receiving food stamps, about 350. So we sell 100 just to get $50 back in cash to help pay our rent. At that moment, I was faced with dropping out of school or continuing to graduate. I was just trying to make sure where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do. I decided to continue to try to graduate high school. My senior year was one of the biggest years of my life. It was a year that I was open to many different opportunities. I found what I wanted to do, I had wanted to do. I was introduced into creative writing and I wanted to pursue that and major in journalism. It was the year I met my boyfriend, which he supported me so much. And it all down, got down to graduation day. I was the first one out of my family to do that. It was a big moment and I was too excited. I had family, friends. My boyfriend was in a stage on, in a crowd screaming my name. I was nervous just like I am now <laughs> on walking the stage. But when I walked across stage and got my diploma, the first thing I just thought was, Mom, we did it. First of all, 
big hugs and thanks to Fantasia Walker for sharing her story. Keep doing your thing. And we've got thank yous to go around for that piece. We're introduced to Fantasia through David Brower at WUNC North Carolina Public Radio and the fabulous youth outreach program they have there. Please take note, public media. And thanks as well to The Monty, a fantastic storytelling resource. They've got a podcast. Check them out at themonty.org. We'll have a link at snapjudgment.org. That piece was produced by Anna Sussman and Mark Ristich. Now then, one of the reoccurring themes of the Snap Judgment program is that sometimes you get more than you ask for. The subject of our next story, he wanted a little taste of a survivor experience. But you best believe on Snap Judgment. He got it. Julia DeWitt, tell us all about it. Mike has a gold mining plot in northern Alaska, 130 miles north of the Arctic Circle. He goes out there with his dog and his chainsaw and he tends to his land once a year. Usually he goes alone because, see, Mike is a real seasoned outdoorsman. But he had this friend, Andy, and Andy was not an outdoorsman. He was sort of a city slicker, at least compared to Mike. Andy was a friend of mine, and he wanted to get out into the wilderness and see what it was really like one time. So one year, Mike agreed to take his friend Andy up to Arctic gold country. They stayed out there for a couple of weeks in totally beautiful, empty wilderness. But it wasn't actually until the day that they went to float out to the airstrip to go home that Andy's big wilderness adventure really started. When we were ready to leave, we were just going to throw the raft in and float down to the lake where the airstrip was. We woke up and there was about two or three inches of snow on the ground. It's like 10 degrees above zero. (laughs) This was mid-September. So when we got out to the river, there was big chunks of ice running down the river. So we load up and we start down the river. Things are going okay. We got maybe about four miles and there was this nick point across the river and ice had jammed up there. The water was going over the rocks and then it was going under the ice. Running into the ice jam would mean disaster and they were headed straight for it. We don't want the raft to go under the ice. And they didn't want to go with it. Current started picking up a little bit and it's like, oh God, what are we going to do? The water picked up even more speed and with only moments left until they were sucked under, Mike came up with a plan. If we can keep the front end of it up somehow by jumping out and grabbing it, hopefully we'll be okay. The water got to top speed and they jumped. Just as the tip of the raft was about to get pulled under, they grabbed it and pulled up hard. But as it hit that ice, tore the bottom out. It was all they could do just to hold on to their bottomless raft. Out went their gold mining gear, and... Most of our food. (laughs) That was the big thing. So what we did is we said, okay, this is it. We're going to have to go from here on foot. Now we're just going to take with us what we absolutely needed. A small tent, our sleeping bags, what food we had left, which was one bag of rice, two duck breasts, and a bottle of Worcestershire sauce. That was it. They were stranded almost 40 miles from the airstrip, and it was getting dark. That night, they camped in the snow next to the ice jam. We broke camp that morning. I think we ate the bag of rice, and that was our breakfast. We heft our packs, and we start walking down the banks of the river. It continued to snow for the next two days. Snow was probably just below our knees. It totally masked the surface of the ground, perfect for breaking your leg. Finally, I said to Andy, this is a situation where one of us could really get hurt badly, and then we'd really be in trouble. And he said, well, aren't we in trouble already? I said, no, we're not in trouble already, but but if one of us gets seriously injured, we go from being in good shape instantaneously to being in real bad shape. We're about 130 miles north of the Arctic Circle here. There's no communication at all. Their pilot would have to come looking for them if he didn't find Mike and Andy at their original meeting spot. 
Mike found a gravel bar that was big enough for the plane to land on, and they sat down to camp and wait, just hoping that the plane would find them soon. We're going to have dinner, and all we've got is two duck breasts. That was it. And the bottle of Worcestershire sauce. We thought about it and figured out oh, there's a reasonable chance we can get a rabbit, so we could, we'll just eat our duck, because we were hungry, all right? The next morning we get up and heated up some water and I made myself a cup of Worcestershire sauce tea. <laughs> I told him, I said, okay, look, you take the shotgun and go out and Andy's gone for about an hour and a half and he comes back with a rabbit. That was all we were able to get for the next three days. So then the next day, it was still snowing. And by this time, we were starting to feel the effects of not eating. Over the next few days, it just got worse and worse. Our conversations after the second day out there were about pretty much food, like whipped cream, butterscotch topping. We were both healthy young men, right? We'd come up with these little posits. We would say like, I'm trying to think of who the real babe movie star was back in those days. Let's say Sophia Loren. If Sophia Loren was here, and she said that she'd sleep with you tonight. Or there was a big pile of pancakes with maple syrup and butter on it. What would you do? <laughs> Which would you take? <laughs> and it was, I'm going for the pancakes, man. <laughs> that's, that's how far down the road we were, all right? The only, if she'd had a purse with candy in it, we would have gone for it. No way we were interested in anything else but food. Food occupied our conversation pretty much. And then... Exclusively? Huh? Exclusively? Not exclusively, because periodically Andy'd say, do you think we're in danger here? <laughs> he was starting to wonder if we were ever going to get out of there. And to be perfectly honest with you, it was like, well, how much longer are we going to have this really lousy weather, and how much longer are we going to be sucking on four-day-old <laughs> rabbit bones that we boiled to death? They sucked on those rabbit bones and watched the sky for three long days. And then finally, on their fourth day, freezing and hungry. The weather broke. We're just sitting there next to the fire and hear this airplane coming. And we threw the green spruce on the fire and made a bunch of smoke and everything. It kept right on going. I don't think he ever saw us. A couple hours later, we heard an airplane coming and it turned out to be our pilot. This time, the pilot spotted them. He came to get them, and they flew home. We get back to my house, and uh, we get on the scale. He had lost 23 pounds, and I'd lost 24 pounds. Patty says, what do you guys want to eat? And I said, listen, Andy and I talked about this. What we want are four pancakes with butter between each pancake, maple syrup on top of that, and then two big scoops of vanilla ice cream, and then uh, whipped cream. So that's what you made us. We each had like four. <laughs> so what did Andy think of his, his wilderness experience? <laughs> he figured he got it in spades, you know what I mean? That was about as good a wilderness experience <laughs> as you could possibly have. Thank you, Mike Manly Man Cuns, for letting us know how it all went down. That piece was produced. <laughs> I mean, who else is going to deal with all the elements and blizzards and such? That piece was produced by Snap Judgment's own Julia DeWitt. You've almost survived to the bitter end of the Snap Judgment program. But Glenn... I might have missed some of it. What can I do? What can I do? Not to worry. Full episodes, podcasts, movies, stuff. Available right now at snapjudgment.org. Facebook, yes. Twitter handle, snapjudgment.org. iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, the NPR app. Snap serves it up hot, fresh, and tasty your way. Snap was produced by myself and an amazing team that would never, ever vote each other off any island for a million dollars. No, no, no. Never. Please say hello to the Uber producer himself, Mr. Mark Ristich. Pat Mercedes-Miller makes the beats go boom, boom. 
Stephanie Fu has survived on ramen noodles and Wonder Bread for three years running. An assessment knows what baby seal tastes like. Our Alaska correspondent, Julia DeWitt, does not feel the cold. Enzo Gorio can survive minutes at a time on less than top shelf whiskey. Nick Vandekoe can skin a deer in seven minutes. And Will Urbina survives on his rugged good looks. Now, just because some people can land on Michigan's Isle Royale, armed with nothing but a loincloth and a bowie knife for a seven-day survival adventure, doesn't mean that the Corporation for Public Broadcasting is one of them. Give them some hot chocolate and a seat in front of the fire. Many thanks to the CPB, PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, locking people in dark rooms and making them subsist on nothing but public radio. PRX.org. And you know this is not the news. No way is it the news. In fact, you could plan your Super Everest wilderness excursion by purchasing one of those fancy, head-to-toe, battery-powered snowsuits with the high-tech heating coils. Keep you comfy cozy in the harshest blizzard. You could laugh loudly in the face of everyone without the latest in wilderness technology. And then get as far as Everest Base Camp before realizing you forgot the batteries. You could do all that, and you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is NPR.